0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 253, MacArthur, Everything is in Readiness, the Philippines and Singapore. Last time, the various Japanese amphibious forces had launched, now that the American military presence at Pearl had been humbled. Given Yamamoto's window of opportunity of six months to a year, it was imperative that the resource-rich possessions of the Western powers in Southeast Asia be brought under heel. As for the Philippines, notwithstanding the presence of General MacArthur and his growing force of troops and airplanes, as it was in between Japan and the Dutch East Indies, with its tea, sugar, tobacco, rubber, quinine, and oil, it was necessary to invade there as well. Hence, the Japanese invasion force in southern Formosa was ready to set sail. And now, given the legendary status, even if mostly self-inflicted, of General Douglas MacArthur, it's worth going over the story of the attack on the Philippines in some detail. At the very least, to examine MacArthur's actions, or lack thereof, during the initial stage of the approaching Japanese. Every military of every country worth its salt prepares war plans against most, if not all, other major countries, be they friend or foe. That is simply the reality of politics, that they sometimes break down and today's friend is tomorrow's foe. Hence, a plan of some sort, even if it never sees the light of day, is necessary. Successful wars are generally not an impromptu affair. So, during the 1930s and through the early 1940s, Washington had been changing its war plans concerning Japan as the political tension with that country rose and fell, given Japan's heavy-handedness in China. Plan Orange, the latest plan in the 1930s, was considered out of date as those in uniform back in Washington considered that the next war would not be against a single country, but probably an alliance of several countries. Hence, Orange gave way to a Rainbow scheme. And one aspect of the Rainbow Plan was based on there being a two-ocean war with the United States, allied with Great Britain. And probably because of this, in whatever war was to come in the future, it was decided that Europe would have priority for it would not be prudent to focus on Asia first and allow Great Britain, the partner, to be forced out of the conflict. This was the reality that MacArthur, as the recently appointed commander of the Philippine Department of the U.S. Army, had to deal with, even if he did not like it, and he did not. For now, if war came to Asia, his responsibility was to hold Manila Bay on the southern end of the largest island, Luzon, and its adjacent lands, to allow the U.S. Navy to have a safe harbor once any war in Europe was over. But as much as MacArthur had bridled at the various orange plans over the years, Rainbow Five, the latest, ignited immediate consternation. Why had he been struggling for the last six years if the majority of the Philippines was to be sacrificed? only to be rescued later, but probably by then, in a state of complete destruction. Hence, with the attack of Pearl just two years away, the General started his own campaign against Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall and the Secretary of War Henry Stimson to expand his area of responsibility that was to be safeguarded, and he wanted the men and the material to make it possible, his first mistake. Washington was doing everything in its power to grow the U.S. military in all its forms, which takes time and money, but in late November of 1941, MacArthur won his war. The Joint Army and Navy Board altered Rainbow Five to read that the general's new areas of defense were to be all land and sea necessary to hold the entire Philippine archipelago. But it went beyond that, MacArthur's second mistake. If war came, he was also to assist the Navy in their raiding of Japanese sea lanes and launch airstrikes at all enemy positions within his reach. Further, he was to help the British and Dutch in defending their possessions. This meant adding on Malaya, Singapore, and Java. But MacArthur said that he and his as-yet-tested Filipino troops and his air arm could get the job done. One of his last mistakes. And as Washington was more than preoccupied with the building tension with Japan and the events in Europe, the uniformed men back home took him at his word. Their mistake. But in the General's defense, had the Japanese waited until April of 1942, he would have probably given a much better account of himself. Alas, the Japanese knew this. In truth, MacArthur had put up one hell of a sales pitch, and Washington bit hard. When the USAFFE, United States Army Forces in the Far East Command, was established In July of 1941, with the general in command, his superiors strove mightily to supply him, certainly when factoring in the needs of the Allies in Europe. By early December, MacArthur had 31,000 troops, 2,500 officers, and 2,800 enlisted men. This included 12,000 Philippine scouts, but most were inadequately armed. The good news was that most of the increase from July to December was in the Air Corps. To go along with the Air Staff, by December, there were 35 B-17 heavy bombers, 15 B-18 medium bombers, 91 P-40 fighters, 26 P-35 fighters, and 14 observational aircraft. And there were more B-17s on the way, but these were the planes and their crews that had the misfortune to be landing at Pearl Harbor on the morning of the attack. Still, MacArthur was slated to have more bombers and fighters than the Hawaiian Islands. But, trying to fix the threat that hung over his country in his own way, Philippine President Manuel Quezon was seeking independence for his country before the 1946 mandate. His hope was, as an independent nation, they could stay neutral in the building conflict. Not that it would have mattered. The island was tied to the United States and in the way of Japan's territorial goals. What this all boiled down to, in regards to the Philippines, vis-a-vis Japan's Operation No. 1, was that MacArthur had too much coastline to guard against, and not enough men weapons, planes, or boats to defend it. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. That's yahoofinance.com. MacArthur's next mistake in the coming war was his antipathy towards the U.S. Navy, to the point that it hardly mattered in his various defensive plans. Further, as MacArthur and the commander of the Asiatic Fleet, Admiral Thomas C. Hart, did not get along, personally or professionally, the idea of a coordinated defense was preposterous. And what Admiral Hart had on hand did not engender much confidence. The heavy cruiser Houston, the light cruisers Marblehead and Boise, 13 destroyers, 29 submarines, and a mixture of gunboats, torpedo boats, and auxiliary craft. Still, as the North Atlantic had to be shielded, and the Pacific Fleet was gathered in or near Pearl, this assemblage should have made the general... Feel a bit more secure, but it did not, as he only thought of the army as the shield and sword of his command. And yet, despite all of this, Hart fell under the sway of MacArthur's optimism that Luzon could be held, that a Japanese thrust could be blunted, as had those in Washington. So Hart asked Admiral Harold Betty Stark chief of naval operations, could he concentrate his naval forces in Manila Bay. But Stark had his own ideas about parrying an enemy strike, namely that the U.S. did not possess enough forces in the Philippines to do this. So the answer was no, coupled with an order to disperse his fleet. As November 41 ended and December began, MacArthur still felt strongly despite blunt warnings from Washington that if Japan attacked, and that seemed likely, as FDR was determined not to make the first move, that the blow would still come in the new year. To this, Admiral Hart and Francis B. Sayer, the High Commissioner of the Philippines, gave their dissenting views. But MacArthur rarely took other views into consideration, and it seemed Orders, as he was told again, should hostilities occur, you will carry out the tasks assigned in Rainbow Five. But the general would make his own determinations, according to his own worldview. Which was, as he told Washington, everything is in readiness for the conduct of a successful defense. Then events moved apace. British Vice Admiral Sir Tom Phillips met with MacArthur and Admiral Hart, to which the General again stated that the trouble would not come until the spring. But when the two naval officers were alone, they talked over implementing Rainbow Five, regardless of what the General would do. And, making the situation even murkier, Admiral Phillips agreed with Hart that Manila, if it could be held, was a superior base to Singapore for future operations, yet this went against the entire British position so far in how to fight the Japanese. Meanwhile, Admiral Hart was told, unofficially, that even if Japan attacked British or Dutch possessions and nothing American held, Rainbow Five would still be activated. At 2.30 a.m. December 8th in Manila, which was 8 a.m. in Hawaii, December 7th, an unencoded message came through. The duty officer at the moment was Marine Lieutenant Colonel William T. Clement. The message read simply, Air raid on Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. Clement called and awoke Admiral Hart to say he was coming over. The message was read out and Hart sent the following to his fleet. Japan started hostilities, govern yourselves accordingly. He was in his office by 4 a.m. MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Major General Richard K. Sutherland, found out about the Pearl Harbor attack a little later, and around 3.40 a.m. woke up the general with a private call. But, as we have seen previously, the sad drama played out over Luzon. Air Commander General Louis Brereton was not allowed to see MacArthur, nor would Chief of Staff Sutherland let him execute Rainbow Five, that part that pertained to Japan, even though this was Army Chief of Staff General Marshall's explicit order. And when MacArthur finally gave Brereton the go-ahead personally on the phone, seven hours had passed since the General had been informed himself. The bombers and fighters came in to refuel, and it was then, at 12.25 p.m. local time, 196 enemy fighters and bombers of the Japanese 11th Air Fleet started their attack runs and cleft MacArthur's air arm in twain, lined up all nice and neat on his various airfields around Manila. As Clark Field lay in ruins, only one B-17 survived, but thankfully 16 more were further south, at Del Monte Field on Mindanao, the most southern large island. Army Chief of Staff Marshall sent another request for an update to MacArthur, but it was not until the evening of December 8th local time, a good eight hours after the Japanese bombers had left Clark Field, That the general replied to Marshall, our air losses heavy and enemy losses medium. The first part was true enough, but certainly not the second, as the attackers only lost seven planes. But then MacArthur compounded his problems, not that he probably saw it that way, by also saying in his telegram, launching a heavy bombardment counterattack tomorrow morning in southern Formosa. Considering all that had happened, this was an out-and-out fantasy. As there was a war on, there wasn't much time for questions or recriminations. Still, as historian William H. Barch would write, after thoroughly studying the attack on Clark Field, how was it possible that an air force, on full alert, notified of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and forewarned of a force of enemy aircraft approaching, could have been caught with its planes on the ground when the attack began. Fortunately for the American and Filipino soldiers who had survived the December 8th bombing runs, heavy rains forestalled another Japanese air attack on the 9th. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've got your Father's Day gift taken care of. Have you heard the expression, less is more? That's so true in our over-stimulated world. Or as the folks who make the Ridge Wallet say, cluttered life, cluttered mind. Well, the first step to getting decluttered is taking a look at your wallet. That leather bifold thing bulging out of your pocket. Feels more like a suitcase, right? Old receipts, spent gift cards. No, you need, you want, the Ridge Wallet. A minimalist front pocket wallet that will be the last wallet you'll ever buy. The Ridge helps you carry less, but always, what you need. It looks nothing like a traditional wallet. Two metal plates of titanium, carbon fiber, or aluminum. So there's an option for everyone. Bound together by a durable elastic band. It's slim, FRID blocking, and lifetime guaranteed. And it comes in a dozen different styles and colors. I got the titanium gunmetal and the carbon fiber wallets, so I can switch it up whenever I want. I've had it for a month now, and I enjoy it very much. Now I carry what I need in my front pocket. And the Ridge wallet is so slim, it seems to disappear. But all of my valuables are right there. And for the ladies, you too can have all your necessities in one small, sleek container. Join the more than 250,000 men and women who have switched and decluttered their lives. Get 10% off today with free worldwide shipping by going to ridgewallet.com slash WW2. That's ridgewallet.com slash WW2 and use code WW2. When it was 11.30 a.m. at Pearl, December 7th, The post-attack scene at the harbor was a mishmash of blood and oil, and the Japanese strike force was en route to the marshals. It was 5 a.m. in Singapore, December 8th. That's when the bombs started raining down. The air raid siren had been ringing out, but for the people of the island of Singapore, they assumed it was just another drill. Yet the people of the continental U.S. knew differently, as by now their radios were flooded with reports on the attack at Pearl. The Japanese attack plan was to send 34 bombers from two different bomb groups who would lift off from southern Indochina, form up, and then make their run. However, cloudy conditions made it impossible for the two groups to find each other. Hence, one group returned to base which only left the 17 bombers of the Mihoro Air Group to make the run. Their targets were two RAF bases, the Sembawang Naval Base and Keppel Harbor. If all of these could be made unusable for the next few days, that would allow the Japanese to run wild to the north along the Malay Peninsula, securing it. Then all forces could be brought to bear to take on the Commonwealth might. At Singapore, including the Repulse and the Prince of Wales. Just under 100 miles to the north of Singapore, along the east coast, the Mersing radar station picked up the incoming bombers, who were still an hour away. Right away, Flight Lieutenant Tim Viggers requested to lead three Brewster Buffalo fighters from No. 453 Squadron against the intruders. But Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham said no. First, because the already tense anti-air units around Singapore might fire on the friendly aircraft. And two, the Buffalo was designed for daytime flying only. Another reason could have been that the Air Marshal knew, or should have known, that the older, slower Buffaloes stood no chance against any escorts accompanying the bombers. Still, Vigors was a veteran of the Battle of Britain and had flown at night and knew that sometimes the odds were worth defying. Ironically, there were twelve Bristol Blenheim night fighters at Patani to the north, but as they had already been designated for ground attack, these planes were not considered. This was not the first nor last too narrow of thinking from a staff in an office, back in headquarters. The air raid sirens were still wailing, however the city's lights were still brightly lit. It seems that no one was at the civil air raid headquarters to answer the phone, nor could the holder of the keys to the master switch to turn off the lights be found. The Japanese bombers were guided in by the city's very lights. When the bombers were overhead, the naval base's anti air guns opened up, as did the guns of the Prince of Wales and Repulse. But none had the range, so the shells fell upon the city along with the Japanese bombs, killing at least 60 people and injuring another 133. If the British, like the Americans, thought little of the range of Japanese aircraft or their pilots' ability, they were as it were, given the straight dope. The bombers managed to score hits on the two RAF airfields and damage three Blenheims. As for the Japanese, all attacking aircraft returned home safely. Fortunately for the British-led troops of Singapore, there would be a reprieve as the attackers would go on to focus on northern Malaya. When the all-clear signal was sent out, Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham put out a message that read, We are ready. Our preparations are made and tested. Our defenses are strong and our weapons efficient. As of the civilian population, Malay, Chinese, Indian, or Burmese, we expect patience and endurance. Which was true from a certain point of view. The British point of view. But one man, one of many, who was not impressed with the statement was Yates McDaniel, an American representative of the Associated Press. After looking around and asking the right questions of the right people, he knew that the Buffalo fighters were no match for the Zero fighters, that there was not one tank in Malaya, and that all the great guns of Singapore were pointed out to sea which negated them should the Japanese come down the peninsula, and that the troops in Malaya, despite the training manual put out a few years ago, had not received any jungle training, and lastly, that the locals had purposefully been left out of any defense preparation of their land, their homes, and that many of the locals hated the British more than they hated the Japanese. So much for being ready, strong, and united. Before the day was out, the reporter McDaniel was asked if he wanted to go along with Admiral Tom Phillips, who would be taking the Prince of Wales, Repulse, and several destroyers north along the coast to check the Japanese. McDaniels declined as he was the only AP reporter in the area. Force Z the fleet's designation for this assignment, headed out that afternoon. As it departed, Admiral Phillips asked Air Vice Marshal C.W. Pulford for air cover on his sortie. But Pulford hesitated, as his airfields in northern Malaya were already out of commission due to Japanese bombing. The best Pulford could do was promise that tomorrow, December 9th, there would be air cover, but he seriously doubted there would be any for the 10th. As the ship sailed out, Pulford now knew that he could not even keep his promise about the ninth, so sent the following radiogram. Regret fighter protection. Impossible. The Admiral's response to this was, well, we must get on with it. Unknowingly or not, Phillips was about to pit the old world's manifestation of military power against its newest cousin, unencumbered by gravity and heedless of tonnage. Postscript. Now, this is just my opinion, but when Sutherland called MacArthur at 3.40 a.m. and told him that the Japanese had hit Pearl, I can't believe that the conversation was simply one of informing the general. MacArthur had told everyone that not only would the Japanese not strike until April or so, and this is just another guess, but a part of his confidence that he would be able to hold Luzon was from that belief of a later engagement. Hence, the call had to stupefy the general. And Sutherland, being fanatically loyal to MacArthur, as he was known to be, probably discussed ways to spin this. After all, they were not prepared, which Sutherland would have known slightly better than the general, because the latter barely ever left his headquarters. Either way, the blame, as would any resulting glory, had they been successful, has to be laid at the feet of the person at the top, MacArthur. But the general would go on to make even bigger Mistakes, which would lead to 100,000 men trapped and left starving, proving the general was all too human.